Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Rudzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Dana Suskind, a pediatric surgeon and director of the Pediatric Hearing Loss and Cochlear Implant Program at the University of Chicago. A national thought leader in early language development, Dr. Suskind's research and clinical work aims to prevent early cognitive disparities and the lifelong impact those disparities can have on kids. She's the founder and co-director of the TMW Center for Early Learning and Public Health. And her most recent book is Parent Nation, Unlocking Every Child's Potential, Fulfilling Society's Promise. Dr. Suskind, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You are a pediatric surgeon who specializes in hearing loss and cochlear implantation. Now we imagine that that on its own is enough to keep you busy, but you're also a national expert on early language development. So can you make that connection for us? How did your life as a surgeon come to intersect with the world of language and brain science? At first glance, it looks very different, but it actually is very connected. I I like to say that my work as a social scientist really started in the operating room because as a pediatric otolaryngologist who specializes in giving children born deaf cochlear implants, I allow them to have access to sound, hearing, and spoken language, which is necessary components for all children to have healthy brain development. And the way I got to it was really as an implant surgeon. Early in my practice, I started noticing dramatically different outcomes in my patients after surgery, with some of them excelling developmentally and others not at all, some learning to talk, others not. The ability to hear, it turned out, didn't always unlock their full capacity to learn and thrive intellectually. And for me, in trying to understand the origins of these differences, and more importantly, what I could do to allow all my patients to do well, uh, I began a journey far outside the operating room into the world of social sciences. And it was there in this sort of exploration that I started learning about the early child development literature and the power of early language environments. How and how much language and nurturing interaction children are exposed to is critical for not just children with hearing loss who get cochlear implants to learn vocabulary and spoken language, but for all children to have healthy brain development. Realizing that the disparities I was seeing in my deaf patients really just mirrored the population at large. That in all children, the differences in early language exposure correlate with differences in learning and achievement. And while the research is rich and complex, it really is what started me off on this journey into the world of education and social sciences. Dana, this connection between medicine and the social sciences, this interest that you developed, led you to write a book called 30 Million Words and to launch what came to be known as the TMW Center at the University of Chicago. So can you tell us about that? What is the center and what does it do? You know, as I mentioned, my journey into the world of social sciences started as wanting to give all my patients the ability to reach their potentials, but it enlarged very quickly to really wanting not just my patients, but all children to have access to rich early learning environments and really for all parents to be supported in that. And so the TMW Center is really a translational research center at the University of Chicago that is dedicated to ensuring all parents and caregivers and really all adults in society are allowed to have the knowledge of 
the science of healthy brain development and the strategies for that. And towards that end, what we do is we have sort of three prongs of work. One is really developing evidence-based programs that help parents and caregivers really learn about their role as brain architects and how to put it into action, you know, with rich conversation. So we develop programs and we test them and we advance the science. And then the second prong is really partnering with communities, you know, across the country to embed these programs, study them, understand how to scale them so that not only do you help parents and caregivers understand, but most importantly, impact child outcomes. So we conduct rigorous randomized control trials, as well as other types of science to advance our learning as well as advance our impact. And so we develop programs, we develop cutting edge tools that help researchers, practitioners, and policymakers learn about what impact they're having. And ultimately, all of our work is to help ensure the healthy development of all children and to give every child a chance to reach their potential. And one of those programs, or perhaps one of the approaches, is what you call the 3T strategy, which stands for tune in, talk more, and take turns. You've written that parents and caregivers are an untapped resource with the incentive and capacity to make a significant difference, yet far too many don't know they have the power or capability. So can you walk us through those three T's? Yeah. Uh, what do those strategies look like and how do they give parents the opportunity to use that power, use that capability to make a difference? These three T's that I'm going to explain, they are the behavioral toolkit that underlie almost all of our work. Because at the foundation of everything that we do is this idea that through nurturing talk and interaction, you help build a child's brain. We sort of cull this complex science into the three T's. Tune in, talk more, take turns. Tuning in is really tuning into your child's interest, following your child's lead, getting on your child's level with joint attention. Then talk more is just as it sounds, talking about it, using rich conversation, talking about the past, the future, and the present. And lastly, take turns. Take turns is probably the most powerful of the three T's. It's really having a conversation with your baby from day one. The science has shown that this is one of the most powerful ways to get those sort of neural connections happening. And so these three T's, tune in, talk more, take turns, are things that parents can do while they're changing their baby's diaper or taking the train downtown and they are embedded into all of our programs because at the end of the day the three t's are what build a child's brain so dana i will admit that i think i started narrating my kids lives (laughs) (laughs) ideally my wife and i smartly use the three t's and as a parent you just feel all sorts of anxiety anxiety about so many things day to day but then the longer term success because We want our kids to be happy and to be healthy and successful in whomever it is that they might be. So what does the science say about how tuning in, talking more, and and taking turns supports kids and sets them up for success? I'm excited to share what the science shows, but I also later on, hopefully we can discuss and address this feeling of angst that so many parents feel and the importance of there is something called good enough parenting and that society needs to play a better role in supporting parents in this important endeavor of being children's brain architects. But I'll answer your question first. 
I like to say that in the same way that milk feeds the body, the science shows that language and nurturing interaction feed the brain. And this is most true during the early years of life, in the first three years of life, when the brain is in its most rapid and most critical period of growth. There will never be a more effective time to establish the foundations for learning and development. And it's really interesting because the fact that we enter this world with a relatively underdeveloped brain and experience this protracted period of development is ironically one of the greatest evolutionary gifts there are because this evolutionary strategy of extended brain development is really contingent on parents or, or caregivers to bridge the gap and help babies go from helpless to brilliant. Each brand new baby contains billions of neurons with little or no communication between them. And in the first months and years of life, the number of neurons inside a young brain explodes. More significantly, so do the new connections that form between the brain cells at an estimated rate of like a million new neural connections per second. It's crazy. And really, every new experience serves as a guide. And the science is pretty clear. It tells us some of the most essential experiences for brain formation are those nurturing interactions encouraged by the three T's. I mean, you can call it anything. We call it the three T's because neuroscience tells us that these interactions provide the critical neural nutrition to the developing brain. You know, it begins on the first day of life when a parent first coos and cuddles with their baby and continues through preschool. And it really allows children to reach their potential. Scientists have shown that building a sturdy brain architecture in the early years is the way that leads to stronger cognitive skills like literacy and spatial reasoning, you know, or socio-emotional skills like self-control later on down the line. Dana, a moment ago, just before you shared the science, you used a phrase, good enough parenting. And I did feel my shoulders set back a little bit when you said that because... <laughs> You are someone whom we and our listeners respect so much. And we're going to turn in a moment to your newest book called Parent Nation. But can you say something about good enough parenting and what you meant by that when you said that? I think part of the issue, especially in this country, is that we sort of internalize this feeling that not only is it all on us, but we have to like continually be thinking about it, that there's only one way to parent our child so that they can, as you say, get them set up for success. And the truth is, is that there are many ways to parent a child. There's one way to build a brain, right? That's nurturing interaction. But too often we think of parenting in every single micro moment. It's a broader entirety of the whole. And look, all of us, and let me tell you, I'm a parent. Uh, there are many times where, you know, you're like, ah, I should have done it differently, or, you know, I wasn't at my best. But if we give our children the unconditional love, that nurturing interaction as a whole, and protection from toxic stress, there is something good enough parenting. It's not like you've got to do 10,000 steps. It's the entirety of our parenting experience. This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Dr. Dana Suskin, founder and co-director of the TMW Center for Early Learning and Public Health. Moments ago, I mentioned your most recent book, Parent Nation. It's the book in which you go beyond your work with individual parents and families, focusing on systems. And you write in this book this, the larger realities of a family's circumstances, their work constraints, economic stresses, and mental health, as well as the injustices and bad luck they are subject to, all matter as much as the three T's for healthy brain development. Can you say more about that, Dana? I don't think any of us get through this world without 
things happening. And we rely on our support, our family, our society to help prop us up. Uh, but too often, families don't get that. We know this intellectually, but for me, you know, in the work of our center, we, myself, we're really getting to know so many families up close and over time. And while their enthusiasm was thrilling, they embraced those three T's with gusto. And what is so true is that they wanted what every parent wants to help get their children off to the best possible start. But what was so clear is that those powerful three T's only took parents so far. I was seeing this alarming disconnect between what we know, what children's brains need, and what we've actually done to develop those brains, uh, or more likely to support parents in developing those brains. Because at the very moment, when parents and children could use the most help, this society does nothing or often makes it harder on parents than it should be. And I find it sort of ironic because, you know, we live in a country where it's illegal to separate a puppy from its mother in the first eight weeks of life, yet one in four mothers is forced to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth. You know, the fact that we are the only country of 38 OECD countries without paid leave and that we spend less on early childhood care and education than any other developed nation that we have childcare deserts. I mean, the, the majority of parents, they have to work, you know, could go on and on and on. But what was so clear, even in implementing the programs, is those have very real impacts on parents being able to be their children's brain architects. That was the impetus. The truth is, is that our society isn't centered on families. Quite the opposite. We erect daunting barriers in the path of so many mothers and fathers. And, you know, all of these barriers limit the time and energy parents can devote to brain development of their children, to doing what they want to do, which is give their children the best possible starts. So in my work as a researcher, it's all well and good that we develop programs, we do studies using the powerful three T's. But if parents aren't allowed to be around their children because they're working three jobs, you know, what does it mean? And that book includes some really astonishing statistics. And you just mentioned a few of them. One that stuck with me, wealthy countries, other wealthy countries, invest an average of $14,000 a year for every toddler's care. America spends $500. And, you know, your book includes stories of real families, real people who are grappling with the difficult reality of this. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us about one or two of them. Are, are there people whose stories have really stuck with you? Yeah, I mean, so, so many. Um, and, and the statistic that you mentioned, I think it is just one of many statistics. We've just sort of come to accept that this is just the way it is, but we are such an outlier in terms of our supports for families. And it was really the families that highlighted it. In the book, you know, I have mothers and fathers from all different backgrounds, but uh, you know, a dad, Randy, who actually was one of the dads who signed up for the home visiting program, who loved the fact that being able to talk about his love of baseball could help his son learn math, but had to work two jobs and most days had less than 30 minutes with his kids. Another woman, Sabrina, who is an amazing mother and employee who ultimately had to give up a well-paying job to care for her husband who got incredibly sick and lost her job because they didn't have FMLA and whose family ended up spending over two years in a homeless shelter where she raised two children, the youngest still a baby, you know, in a stressful environment. There was another father who actually I was just texting with his partner, Kiana, but Michael, who was incarcerated 
for the first five years of his son's life while waiting for a trial that quickly exonerated him. So I, I got to know his partner, Kiana, who was pregnant with their son. So these were just some of the many stories that really highlight the disconnect between what we say we want families to be able to do and how our society makes it so hard. And these stories, coupled with what you already knew and what you've learned in in writing these extraordinary books, prompted you to do something. Because Parent Nation is more than just a book. It's also an initiative of the TMW Center. So can you tell us about that? What does Parent Nation aim to do? First of all, a parent nation is not an organization. It's an ideal. It's an ideal of a society that truly puts children and families at the center and understands that the well-being of our children, you know, is absolutely dependent on the support for their parents. And it's a larger ideal. So the sort of overarching argument of parent nation is to try to catalyze this idea. We launched grassroots sort of partner-driven campaign alongside the book. And as part of that campaign, we developed a free suite of tools and resources that can be used by individuals, employers, organizations that already work with parents in support of their efforts to lead change. These resources, which I hope people listening will go to parentnation.org. They're all free and downloadable. You know, they include an action guide to how to really bring together groups and catalyze the change that they want to see in their community. There's a book club guide and this curriculum and guide for hosting parent villages. They're really small groups of parents who come together to support one another and who identify and discuss the needs of families in their community and make a plan to get those needs met. It was developed in partnership with leading parent service organization and parents, and they've been beta tested and previewed by diverse groups of caregivers across the country. Our campaign director, Yoli Flores, who's amazing, uh, she's at this organization called Families in School in LA, and we're partnering with them, and they're going to be doing the train the trainees so that this idea and these villages can continue to spread across the country. You know, our hope is that Parent Nation, the book and the broader initiative, will help generate more ultimately public will to support the investment that children and parents so desperately deserve. Dr. Suskin, this is amazing sounding work. And speaking of public will, I'm curious about what the most pressing policy changes you'd like to see come out of this might be. What would have the biggest impact, in your opinion, on families' ability and on their capacity to support their children's healthy development? There are so many, of course. I think that we fundamentally need to reorient our society around the robust supports for parents and children. But if I had to narrow, I guess, to two, maybe three specific policies, I'd say one is paid family and medical leave. It's just a fundamental. I mean, the fact that we are almost the only country in the whole world that doesn't have that, uh, I think is pretty telling. So I think that paid family and medical leave is a critical idea. And there is actually even research showing that it has positive impacts on not just maternal mental health and the relationship between mothers and their partners and fathers and their children. There's been even some studies showing stronger brain development in the early time period period by Natalie Brito and her colleagues at NYU for mothers who have paid family and medical leave. So there are actually some evidence of brain impacts of paid leave. And when California, which was the first state to mandate it, they've even showed worker retention has improved. So it's not just children and families, but the economy benefits from it significantly. High quality, affordable childcare is one. An extended 
child tax credit is another. What's really important to remind us is that these policies, you know, people can say, oh, they're expensive. And certainly they look expensive on the surface. But the truth is, is that Nobel laureate Jim Heckman has shown that for every dollar we invest in these types of policies, you get 10 to $12 return on investment, both in the wow. short term and then the long term in terms of child development, decreased costs of the education system, stronger workforce, healthier population. These are cost savings. You know, they're net zeros in terms of how much they ultimately cost. So those are just some of them. And Dr. Suskin, as you look across this country, maybe to a place, to an employer, maybe a singular person or organization, is there something that's giving you a lot of hope right now as you think about the changes that a parent nation would realize? The thing that gives me hope is actually a story from about a half a century ago. I mean, there are things that give me hope today, but a story which really demonstrated how a major societal shift can occur that benefits a population. Believe it or not, in the middle of the 20th century, it was actually not children who were the poor segment of the population. It was actually the elderly. And through the AARP and the efforts of the Gray Lobby, they were able to transform what it is to be elderly in this country. Because back then, like as I mentioned, over half were living in abject poverty because of crippling health care and housing costs, etc. And through the AARP, the poverty rates have declined by 70% just by bringing the population together and through this unique sort of structure of the AARP. And I think that parents deserve a similar organization to support them, right? Babies don't vote. We know that. And parents are incredibly stressed and stretched thin. But through this type of organization, I could imagine major positive shifts where all parents, no matter the way they want to raise their children, right? You know, in my book, Parent Nation, I told the story of a mother who's only desire was to be a stay-at-home mother. She was an evangelical Christian whose every family member had been a stay-at-home mom, but because of the lack of health insurance and a living wage, she had to go back to Starbucks. You know, I think that a reorientation with a parent nation would benefit all families, no matter sort of their view on how to raise their children. Uh, it's about giving parents the choice to raise the children in the way they know best. Dr. Suskin, how can people find out more about the work you're doing and maybe even get involved? Please visit our website, both either the tmwcenter.org or parentnation.org. Sign up for the newsletter, follow us on social media. You know, look in your community, see how you can join an organization of parents really trying to lead positive change to support families. And, you know, I'd like to end off on our discussion and give yourself grace, right? Parenting is not easy. It is hard. And uh, remember that it's the overall trajectory and that it's not all on your shoulders. So, Dana, we typically end this podcast with one question and you've just answered it so brilliantly. And that question is this, what's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? And I, as a parent, We'll accept that grace <laughs> and better think about what it means to be good enough. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks again to Dr. Dana Suskind, a pediatric surgeon at the University of Chicago and founder of the TMW Center for Early Learning and Public Health. Her most recent book is Parent Nation, Unlocking Every Child's Potential, Fulfilling Society's Promise. 
Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.